Welcome back to 10 Blocks. I'm your host, Brian Anderson, and joining us on today's show is Coleman Hughes. Coleman is the newest contributing editor at City Journal, and he's also a brand new fellow at the Manhattan Institute. You can follow him on Twitter, at ColdXMan. That's at ColdXMan. Uh, just a few weeks ago, Coleman was still studying philosophy at the University, Columbia University in New York City. In addition to writing for City Journal in the past, he's been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, National Review, The Spectator, and regularly in Quillette. He also hosts his own popular podcast, Conversations with Coleman, which you can find on wherever you get your podcasts. Coleman's written, as I mentioned, a number of pieces for City Journal. His latest is called The Illusion of Certainty. It's about the shooting death of Ahmad Arbery, a 25-year-old black man from Georgia. His killing in February was recorded on video at the time and then released online last month, reigniting, as Coleman puts it, the national debate about racial profiling. Coleman, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'd like to talk uh, with you about your interests and what you'll be working on now that you're a member of City Journal and the MI uh, team. But first, let's talk about this article that you've just written. I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with the story by now and the video that went viral last month. But can you just give, for those who, who haven't been following the issue that closely, a brief description of what happened as, as you understand it anyway? So in the city of Brunswick, Georgia, a uh, 24 or 25-year-old black man named Ahmad Arbery was um, running in a neighborhood. It's you know unclear whether he was out for a jog or you know what what the precursor to the the event was, but he entered a construction site um, and lingered there for about four minutes didn't take anything and then left and continued running. Uh, a neighbor saw him enter the construction site and called 911 uh, because there had been a string of trespassers on that particular site going back something like six months. And in fact, there had been a serial trespasser who looked like a, a black man in his 20s with you know a pretty similar haircut to to Arbery's. And so, you know, this particular person, you know, whether or not it was Arbery, we don't know, had trespassed once in October, once in uh, November, once in January, or sorry, once in December and once in February. So the the absentee homeowner and neighbors were on alert that there was a serial trespasser on this property. So Arbery continued running down the street and three or four doors down on the same side of the street live uh, Gregory and Travis McMichael. Gre Gregory is a former detective uh, and Travis is his son. They saw Ar Arbery running down the street and uh, believed he was a suspect in uh, the you know, trespassing of, of that construction site. So they grabbed a pair of guns got in a truck and followed him with the intent to detain him until the police came. Right. Um, and so, you know, what happened is there was a four minute chase involving the McMichaels in a truck and one other guy named William Bryan in a truck. And finally, Travis, the son gets out of the, 
gets out of the driver's side uh, holding a shotgun. You know, it's unclear exactly how it begins from the video, but right around this, the, the time you hear the first shot, Arbery must have been grabbing the gun either just before or after. And then they're wrestling over the shotgun and you hear two more shots and Arbery goes down. This happened in late February and for two months there were no no charges brought until Gregory McMichael, who was the father, um, had a role in releasing the video, apparently hoping to dispel a couple false rumors that he had a Confederate flag on his truck and that he or his son shot Arbery in the back. So once this video got released, it became a national story and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation got involved and pressed charges against uh, uh, felony murder charges against both father and son and the neighbor who shot the video, William Bryan. Now, this has become a national story, as, as you note, and for certainly the prevailing narrative, the driving force behind this um, this horrible incident, this killing, is racism. Um, but your piece suggests that there are contextual facts that make the allegation, as you say, of racism less compelling, at least, uh, um, you know, as, a, as an immediate premise. So could you t- talk a bit about, you know, how you see the, the contextual facts here and whether, uh, you know, whether the racism charge is, uh, is too hasty or is legitimate? So I understand when an American who is aware of the history of lynching and the optics around two, you know, white men from the South getting a pair of guns and chasing a black guy. I totally understand why the first assumption is, is going to be that they would not have gone after him if he was white. I think that is the natural assumption to make if, if, you know, you're aware of the history of that kind of thing happening, especially in, in the deep South. Uh, however, you know, the, the only really intellectually honest position we can take about this particular case is to judge it by the facts and to not, you know, stereotype the two, you know, Southern white guys as racists without conclusive evidence. And, you know, the more you look at this case, the more you you see how a pair of people could be motivated to chase a guy like this without having to be racist. And the the two contextual facts that uh, that matter here uh, first is the string of break-ins at that particular site. As I said, the same black man had been caught on a motion-activated security camera four times prior to the incident on February 23rd. And each time he was caught on camera, the owner of the house got a notification along with the video and contacted the police. And after the December trespassing uh, event, the um, a local police officer, um, or rather Gregory McMichael, offered to help because he's you know, presumably because he's a neighbor and because he's a, an ex-cop, uh, offered to help catch the guy next time he um, next time he was found trespassing. And what happened was a local police officer, aware of Gregory's offer to help, 
texted the homeowner saying, Hey, you have a na- you have a neighbor who's an ex cop three doors down or, you know, so- something like this I'm paraphrasing. And next time this happens, you can just call him right away and he'll, he'll get down there and check it out. Uh, you know, the implication being that he could get there faster than the police could because he was so close and this guy kept trespassing and the police could never catch him. Uh, and he was not the only neighbor to offer to help in that way, actually. Uh, so there's that. Is, is, is this a high crime area? Yeah. So that that's the other key piece of contextual information. Uh, you know, many people have said uh, to, to as a way of downplaying the concern about crime in this neighborhood that there had been no burglaries reported in the seven weeks prior uh, leading up to the the uh, Arbery's death in late February. And that's true. Uh, at the same time, you have a string of trespassing, a, a string of trespassers, you know, routinely on this property. You had Travis McMichael's uh gun was stolen out of his truck in early January. The The New York Times reported something like 90 uh, 911 calls in the six months leading up to the incident. And then, you know, the most important fact is that just the general crime rate in this in the city is in the top five percentile in the country. You know, mm. it's, it's almost as high as the, the crime rate in the whole city is almost as high as the crime rate in the most violent neighborhood in Chicago, Austin. And I, I think, you know, the, the easiest thing in the world is to uh, minimize a person's concerns about crime in their neighborhood as someone who doesn't live in the neighborhood you know, from the from an outsider's perspective. Uh, when, you know, in reality, if if you were to live in that neighborhood, you might be every bit as concerned as as they were. Right. Um, so when you when you consider those two facts that there's a pre-existing arrangement for the with the police for him to respond and the the really sky high crime rate in the city in general you can see how without being racist a person might pursue arbery in that context well the the um, the incident the killing i think does and you go into this in your piece raise questions about the way the citizen arrests are handled. And, and uh, you know, it, it does seem that the local police were perhaps too lax in encouraging uh, what is basically a form of vigilante behavior on the part of McMichael um, and Travis, his son. What, what's, you know, what's your view on that? Did, did that, I mean, that does seem to play a, a powerful role in, in what happened. Yeah, there are definitely huge problems that, uh, that aren't related to racism per se, but that are very much brought to the fore by this case. Um, the first, the first and, and first and foremost, I think is you see a local police officer texting a civilian with the expectation that he's going to respond to a potential crime. And regardless of the fact that, that, Gregory, uh, you know, was an ex-detective and had the training uh, to to respond to such a crime. The problem is when you're not wearing a badge because you're not a police officer, you carry less authority. And when you go to arrest a suspect, 
often a suspect m- may not be able to tell the difference between your attempt at a lawful citizen's arrest and a you know the early moments of a mugging or a kidnapping and they might simply you know resist with all of their force in a way that they wouldn't if it were actually a police officer with a badge right and that just sets up a situation that's going to you know virtually guarantee that from time to time things like this are are going to happen. Um, And then there's another concern, which is why it took two months for uh, charges to be brought against the McMichaels. Yeah. And and the third man has now been charged as well, right? The the guy who took the the video. Yeah, the guy who took the video and probably played a role in chasing and sort of trapping and blocking off Arbery's potential exit routes um, has been charged with felony murder and false imprisonment. Uh, so yeah, so w- what I what I wanted to say was was just that um, you know people will again want to jump to the conclusion that the reason it took two months is because this was a a white guy. Uh, killing a black guy and the racial element is what, you know, because black life is devalued, you know, the Georgia law enforcement just didn't see fit to charge this person. Um, But, you know, I was interested to see a very, very similar case from last year in which a woman in suburban Georgia tried to make a citizen's arrest of an older black man after the black man had done a hit and run and shot him once, killed him. She was arrested and, and charges were brought against her. Uh, certainly her the fact that she was a 20-something white woman didn't prevent charges in that case. And, you know, I, here's a, just another case where we just have to wait for the full facts to come in. Right. And because c- it could just, it could well be the case that the fact that he was an ex-cop, you know, led the led to a kind of bias that often happens with the police where they just default to protecting their own. Now you, you cite some of the reactions to Arbor's death in the press and by celebrities. Um, the philosopher George Yancey wrote a, a provocative piece for the New York times, uh, basketball, you know, basketball superstar, LeBron James, uh, tweeted, uh, we're literally hunted every day, every time, we step foot outside the comfort of our homes. Um, that got an enormous amount of play. It was LeBron, after all. Uh, what's What's your take on that response? And I guess, uh, you know, it, it, in your view, it's it's overstated, right? Or it's too hasty. Yeah, there have been two broad lines of of response. One is to compare this to a lynching, or to say that explicitly, it, it is a lynching. I think there's a huge difference between going after someone with the intent to kill them as punishment for a crime that hasn't gone through the normal channels of the justice system and trying to make a citizen's arrest ineptly in a a high crime neighborhood, however deeply unwise that decision was on the part of the McMichaels, and it was deeply unwise. That is not the same as a lynching, and that difference really matters. Um, nobody, you know, w- w- to start, why would they call the police if they were 
intending to lynch this guy? Why would they film it? Why would they release the film? There are just so many things that that clearly distinguish this from what happened to someone like Emmett Till. And then the second broad line of of reaction to this has been the LeBron James route, which is to say that there is uh, an epidemic of white supremacist violence that makes it rational for a black person to fear for his life or at minimum his safety uh, if he wants to go for a jog in a white neighborhood. And I want to draw attention to how differently we treat statements like that, uh, truly alarmist statements, depending on what the issue is. So if, for example, someone were to say, I feel I, I, I fear as an American being killed by a jihadist every time I leave my house, that person would just be completely ridiculed. And, you know, their their alarmism would, you know, would be pointed out in the mainstream media. Um, but, you know, if, if, if I'm going to say I fear for my life every time I leave my house as a black man, uh, you know, I can get hundreds of thousands of likes on Twitter for, for a comment like that. And I can get, you know, praised in on mainstream left-wing new, uh, uh, news outlets. But if you look at the, you know, the actual likelihood of dying in one of these situations, it's absolutely infinitesimal. You're, you're, you know, in, in 2019, a total of nine unarmed black Americans got shot and killed by the cops and, uh, 19 white Americans suffered the same fate. And, you know, there are, there are no doubt many of those cases are just, you know, instances where the cop should be, it should, should absolutely not be a cop. There are other, there are other instances where a cop really did what any cop would have done in the situation and everything in between. But the, the kind of exaggeration and moral panic around white supremacy is, has just deranged people's assessment of the risks. And it's, it's, it's enormous, it's become taboo to, to, you know, pour cold water on these fears. Um, but I think that's part of the, the media's job is to sort of assess risks rationally and tell people when they're freaking out for no reason. And, uh, you know, the media has really failed when it comes to racism. Now you've um, officially joined the Manhattan Institute, you're contributing editor at City Journal. Uh, do you do you want to take a minute to talk a bit about what you'll be working on, what what's forthcoming, maybe uh, um, what you're hoping to accomplish? Well, I have a lot of interests. I um, I think a lot about race and uh, the prevailing ideas and passions about racial identity at the moment in America, how they've changed over the past 10, 50, 100 years. And so I keep a close tab on you know, news stories that touch the prevailing ideas about race. I'm also a philosophy major. I'm not sure how much there is to write about pure philosophy. Um, that's sort of, you know, topical, but I, I enjoy doing book reviews, sometimes reviews of old books, um, that are nevertheless, um, 
relevant to, to what's happening today. And it, you know, it seems like COVID is, is, has taken over everything. So, but I think as, as the weeks and months go on, people will have hopefully more bandwidth to, to think about other topics. Well, you've, you've written a, a terrific essay that will appear in our summer issue on, on the uh, economist Thomas Sowell. It's really a comprehensive look at his career and, and influence. So, uh, so that's, that's on the horizon. Um, you know, I want to congratulate you on finishing at Columbia. You're done now, right? Yes, I am. Well, congratulations. Um, you know, you, you've got another career as a musician. Uh, I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about uh, what you've been doing there and how this uh, pandemic might have affected um, your, your jazz career. Mm. Yeah, well, there are no there are no jazz gigs happening in person, of course, right. in, in the city at the at this time. So, I've been relegated to practicing at home and uh, participating in the occasional remote garage band session where you just send in your track and you know someone you know uh, makes it seem as if you were playing simultaneously. I've done two or three of those and, you know, they end up sounding okay, but you know, it's better than nothing. And there's, there's a lot more time to just hang around and listen and discover new music on my own, which is uh, one of the things I love to do. So it's not all bad. And uh, so, you know, hopefully post pandemic, uh, we'll, we'll get back to uh, jazz shows and, uh, get get an opportunity to hear you play. Um, well, thanks very much, Coleman. Um, you know, d- please, listeners, uh, will be very interested in his uh, brand new piece for City Journal, which is called The Illusion of Certainty. Uh, you can find that and earlier pieces he's written on our website, and we'll link to it in the description. Uh, Coleman Hughes is on Twitter. His handle is at coldxman, and you can follow City Journal on Twitter as well. It's at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. And always, uh, as always, if you, you like what you've heard on the podcast, uh, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, thanks for listening, and thanks again, Coleman, for joining us, and welcome aboard at City Journal. So glad to be here. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.